welcome to our we podcast yet number 5 uh, this time uh, we have a special guest all the way from the other side of the world and from the future mr tim mcnamara that's great welcome to the show tim hi welcome uh, thank you very much for inviting me on it's uh, it's been a real pleasure thank you for joining first of all at uh, this uh, weird hour i think it's almost like 6 o'clock in the morning for you yeah it's just up to 6 a.m Uh ah. but do, do you start your day this early or I, I uh, this year has been very strange so <laughs> I haven't had I haven't been sleeping very well and so yeah. I, I have uh, actually started to wake up really early get a few hours of work done and then try and maybe get some rest or some downtime and then like it's all been very fragmented and fractured so I try to be really flexible Uh, yeah. and to some days i just know i'm not going to get a good sleep some nights and i try, I, i end up awake at 5 and i'll say all right let's just get started no oh. but um yeah but yeah it's 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 a strange year we do we I mean we're all in this uh, strange 2020 so far uh, yeah. we'll we'll get to that point later i think <laughs> this is there's like a constant cloud on top of every you know everyone's life these days Um so speaking of your, your your work maybe maybe give us a bit of introduction like what do you do and uh, your you know your your journey into rust Absolutely. so to to get us get us started So my name is Tim McNamara I am a developer advocate at Canonical the company that develops Ubuntu and my role is uh focused on large scale devops actually um primarily uh trying to convince people that one of the tools that we use the same tool that we use to deploy all of our archives uh like all of our devs and all of our snaps um should be used by your company as well now uh a few years ago i was working at a data science startup uh, sort of as the lead engineer and i got really interested in this programming language rust because i was a python developer because you know that's very heavily used in the data science community but i was always terrified of writing native extensions every mm. single tutorial said this is an expert feature you're likely to kill yourself like you're, you're likely to kill your software <laughs> and i didn't want to probably, probably you <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah potentially me or like i caused myself a heart attack because of some weird debugging issue and manual memory management and I was always terrified. And finally mm. Rust comes along and says you can you're actually you're perfectly capable of this. We are mm. going to stand by like me the compiler, we're not going to fight you. We're going to assist mm. you to write safe software and very very fast, very memory efficient and mm. uh yeah, I think it was the technology that brought me in but the community that has got me to stay. in a yeah, strange yeah. way. Yeah. So that warning that you see on the uh Python native extensions, it's literally the same one that you see on the Debian packaging uh, uh info sheet. It's like literally warning if you try to package stuff, it might kill your computer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And actually I it's it's a really difficult problem because some things can render your computer inoperable. We have mm. one of the 
you know, talking about the book, one of the reviewers in the very latest review. So Manning has this process where one third, two thirds, and one hundred percent. Maybe maybe you should oh. you should tell us what what the book is. Oh, I'm okay. sure everybody everybody knows in the community. You know, it's 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 good to uh, good yeah, to tell yeah, people yeah. which book we are talking about. Right. So I'm I'm not the author yeah. of the book. Obviously, I'm not a C. Fredrick, but uh, <laughs> I write Rust in Action, published by Manning hmm. Publications. Uh, Rust in Action hmm. is a book targeted for intermediate programmers who want to know Rust and maybe a little bit about computing. Another way mm -hmm. to look at Rust in Action is Rust in Action is the book that you read next. So once mm -hmm. you've worked yeah. through the introductory tutorials and you want to start working on real projects to kind of refine your knowledge, that's where Rust in Action does really, really well. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so... Uh, should I? Yeah. So as I was saying about the review process, I had this one of the projects that we work on is an NTP client. So NTP, mm -hmm. the network tell, um, time product protocol, is your computer connecting to uh, atomic clocks over the internet. Yeah. Like how cool is that? Yeah. Like how yeah. does it actually work though? <laughs> I, and yeah. so we learn. We actually go and we dig into the protocol and uh, we re-implement this UDP protocol, which is really tiny and really mm. simple, and it's really elegant. Mm. And one of the reviewers said, "Oh no, no, no you can't do this because you're setting, you're telling users, you're telling readers to set their system clock." And like, there are some yeah. guardrails there, so like, we only increment things in the ten milliseconds. So yeah, you can adjust, but applications don't like it when time goes backwards. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And so yeah. <laughs> there's, there's this problem that, uh, yeah, you could kill yourself. Like, you could kill the computer. You could break the computer. Yeah. You know, you, you, yeah. uh, I, and, uh, you know, my response to that is you could, yes, but also yeah. the software, like, what's written in the book right now, right now will not, well, it shouldn't, I don't think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, 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 it shouldn't break people's computers. Uh, but it it used to be something super, you know, like pretty normal thing to do back in the day when when there are the sharewares, you know, like they, uh -huh. they 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 look at the system clock and if you want to keep running that, just just move your clock to one year before <laughs> keep, yeah. keep running the crap. Yeah, and yeah, sure. Because then you get the yeah. perpetually run your software in January nineteen seventy. That's exactly <laughs> keep it at day zero. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But so uh, so your book is is. Um, of course, I mean, I, I've been reading through it. Uh, I, I haven't completed the whole thing yet. Uh, it's a really, really well written because um, we were just talking some time ago that you, the way that you structure the book is that introducing the concepts in a in a phased manner, right? In in a stepwise manner. Yeah. So, so Rust in Action has a slightly different approach to most programming language books. Rather than saying we're going to touch on, we are going to work through. Uh, let's say numbers and then strings and then da -da 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 -da. Mm. and we we yeah. don't we kind of look at a project and say well what are the tools that we need to to use and mm. uh, and then we learn things piece by piece and uh, yeah every chapter has a worked example like quite a long mm. one and so they take a few weeks to code up and then mm. the writing starts and then during the writing process for the chapter. I'll unpick it and find, well, actually, I need to learn to teach this one little piece, and then yeah. I'll have to teach this other piece. And so we kind of get this chain of dependencies that we work through. Uh, mm. And sometimes, actually, there are 
things that I need to pull out of the example through the editing process so that uh, I only teach one big new thing in every chapter. Like, that's my hope. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, uh, for example, threads don't appear until very late in the book. Mm. Because I didn't want to com- add heaps of complexity to, mm. like, I didn't want to introduce parallelism, <laughs> kind of yeah. non-determinism <laughs> to people's programs uh, mm. right at the start. And yeah. the yeah. other thing that I think I moved was, uh, oh, uh, no, no, I've completely lost it. Sorry. No, that's okay. <laughs> we'll we'll get back to your book again anyway. Yeah. I think that's <laughs> so, a sensible choice, by the way, the keeping the 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 parallelism and the concurrency until later. Because mm-hmm. I think one of the go tutorials has it as like exercise ten or something, which is like count all the nodes in the bloody blah, blah blah using using go channels and functions. And like mm-hmm. yes, there's a very elegant algorithm, but like to this day, like I still, you know, still like need to think very hard to understand it and like they put this in the tutorial of a programming language and so mm. i've not been able yeah. to use that tutorial to 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 teach starting programmers go because i kind of know that when they hit that exercise they'll just give up it's too hard yeah, it's too complicated it, 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 and there's this problem of well i as a language designer or like language implementer or person on the project mm. i really want to like show people how wonderful my tools are so we need an example, mm, yeah. very like we need to kind of go over everything. Whereas mm. I sort of say, well, actually, you don't need to learn all of Rust in order to be productive mm. in Rust. And so the other thing is that my code is uh, unidiomatic. So Rust mm. programs would like to be uh, very elegantly written with iterators mm. and uh, higher order higher order functioning. <laughs> I hold programming, yeah. functional programming yeah. concepts and so forth. Yeah. Whereas I use for loops almost everywhere. Mm. Yeah. Because I know that my readers are more used to for loops. And I mm. want to tell people that it's okay to learn Rust as you go. You know, we can, mm. There's plenty of time to learn the details. There's lots and lots and lots of time to learn the advanced stuff. But yeah. first we need to teach you the basics. And that means staying familiar. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So how do you compare? Because you, you uh, obviously wrote a lot of Python uh, before, right? So, or, or maybe still you're writing, I don't know, uh, depending on the type of the work that you're doing. So because Python is kind of a very friendly beginner language, right? Because the way it is, it is constructed and a lot of things that you, need to, that you don't need to think about because lack of typing and all that stuff. Um, so when you started learning Rust, so how how was the experience for you to switch from a language like Python into, you know, more low level plus more typed functional programming sort of uh, programming language? Yeah, super question. The it's very hard now because like it it was a while ago. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. If yeah. you had asked me at the time, I probably would have said that it was really difficult. Uh, mm. And learning Rust took me a few attempts. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. it's different, uh, yeah. Actually, and it and it's. But now that I'm on the other side of that journey, I think the reason why it was difficult is that you are required to learn some new concepts that are unfamiliar to you. 
as well mm. as new syntax, as well as kind of a new programming style. Mm-hmm. So one of the concepts that we introduced these terms like lifetimes, borrowing, borrow checker, uh, at the time, it's less so now, but at the time, there was it was a very, very tight-knit community of people talking about affine types and uh, like monomorphization and lots of very, very technical terms, like lots and lots of jargon that I found intimidating. Uh, mm. Then, uh, so you've got these kind of new concepts and there's new syntax. Like I've got like every like the type signatures on with generics and so forth become ridiculous. <laughs> Like yeah. even now, yes. they're kind of embarrassing to look at, right? Like, yeah, it's yeah. kind of ugly and disgusting, but uh, but that's okay. I think we can kind of accept especially it. if you come from Python. Yeah, exactly, right? Yeah. Uh, and then you kind of have to learn the language itself, and so mm. uh, now I think that the Rust community is getting better at teaching people how to program in Rust. And mm. so I don't know if those, and you know, there are more video tutorials, there is more content online, there are more people inside the Discord channels or the Reddit or the, the forums and so forth. And so that process is, uh, is easier now, I hope, yeah. for everybody. Yeah. So there is still a significant, as you said, there are many things that, that you need to that you need to grok and to to yeah it, to like get the I, language an old saying in the Python community, and this is quite old because I uh, mm. was that you know Python fits in your head, yeah, mm. like you can kind of understand exactly what's happening with all of Python, you know, pretty simply. Now, in mm. uh, there later versions of Python have introduced type annotations and so forth because yeah. Python is now a mainstream language. You know, if we were talking yeah, yeah. in two thousand and three, yeah. Like Python was novel and interesting yeah. and different, and like yeah. there's this famous essay from uh, Paul Graham, Graham. and yeah. you know saying that people who pick Python, those are the people you should hire because they are looking at the frontier of our technology industry. Mm. Now we're yeah. in 2020, nearly 20 years later, and the people who are at the frontier are learning Rust, and so. Yeah. Uh, they are pushing through and into this mainstream thing. The, L- Rust is actually very learnable if we start from solid foundations. And I think the solid mm-hmm. foundations are like structs and enums. Don't worry about traits yet. You know, just get defining functions and creating methods and mm-hmm. building yourself up and kind of become familiar with the fact that if you have a reference to some other data, like if we, mm. and then, so once we've mm. kind of learned the basics, the next foundation would be references and kind of joining things together with pointers. Oh, mm. In the hood, they're implemented as pointers, but we don't use that term. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, uh-huh. uh, yeah. So, uh, the, and in fact, you know, sorry, random, random tangent, but. Even the option type <laughs> is actually implemented like with null pointer optimization. Like in assembly uh, yeah. language, the option type mm. is a, like it checks for null pointers itself. Like shh, mm. we you know we've removed null pointers, but we rely on them <laughs> exclusively like extensively in the actual binary. Anyway, uh, <laughs> so so start with structs and, and, and enums. Get used to enums mm. because they're ridiculously effective, and they have made mm. me frustrated with every other programming language. 
And that is mm. from ML programming. And like, I finally understood what all these ML programmers have said about being able to compose and like using a rich type type system. Mm. Uh, yeah. Now, once we've done that, the next step is, is references, I believe, because this idea mm. that if I have created, let's say, a string, for example, because people understand text, like right at the start of my program, and then I've got mm. some secondary or t- uh, some other functions that require access to that string in memory. Mm-hmm. If they want to manipulate the string, they can either do that in place, but we need to make sure that at the end of my function, that the semantics about whether or not the string still exists at the end of it mm-hmm. are clear. Or yeah. if, you know, like who's responsible for cleaning it up? And mm-hmm. uh, one of the things I think, like, Rust inherited a lot of language from C++. And one mm-hmm. of them that I think was, uh, or one thing that I think, you know, naming is difficult, but one of the things that I believe is named poorly is mm-hmm. a borrowing ownership. Uh, now, yeah. borrows are uh, the Rust program as, uh, are functions asking for access to data. Mm-hmm. Now that's sort of clear. That's actually nothing to do with mm-hmm. borrowing. Like it's not. It's it's a metaphor that I think is stretched a little bit too far. Mm-hmm. Because the other the side of that is ownership. Like the owner of a particular value does not have like a property right. It has no ability to exclude others. Like you can't issue a trespass notice against a uh, okay. uh, yeah. against a calling function. You can't. Pro- the owner can never say no to a borrower. Mm. And so mm. I think uh, we have, like, if you're from, like, especially from a Western tradition of uh, mm. property rights, you have this idea that if you own something, you can reject a request for access to that. But actually, in Rust, yeah. you can never mm. reject it. Every borrower is always accepted unless someone else already has the item. Yeah. And so uh, the only thing that an owner is responsible for, it turned out, is destruction. Hmm. Okay, and that for me was one of the things that made everything so much simpler. The owner of the yeah. value is responsible for calling drop. Well, in in Rust mm-hmm. terminology, it's you know calling drop once it's done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, once it mm. once once that value falls out of scope, it will be cleaned up, and that's all the owner does. That's it's, that's it, that, that that's what it means. I kept thinking when mm. I was learning Rust that ownership must mean that there is some like negotiation process between borrows, you know, like is the <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, is it negotiating? Like, is there a currency involved? Like, can you <laughs> don't can I, don't give all know? of the Bitcoin people ideas? I mean, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, so I was I was I was having this kind of stupid fight with myself because I yeah. had this pre-existing uh, ideas about what these terms meant and attempting to apply them. Uh, to to a programming language now yeah it's not rust's fault that it chose terms that are difficult because every term mm. is difficult in programming i mean some things that we think make sense like string mm. must make no sense for people with english as a second language like oh yeah, that, yeah. that's that's true yeah <laughs> uh, like uh-huh. <laughs> Like I, the majority of Rust programmers are not in Silicon Valley. They're not on. The majority of Rust programmers are based in the rest of the world. 
Now, they're all yeah. silent on the forums, but I know from people mm. that have bought my book or communicated with me online that I would say 90% of programmers in Rust are speak English as a second language or even third or fourth language. Yeah. Mm. Uh, now, I would prefer, if I could have, wave my magic wand, that the, t the string type would just be changed to text. String makes yeah, sense. Yeah, this, this is exactly. I mean, this is something that... that we we got used to string because we we learned that you know as C or, or some other language right so uh, because um, I know people who who come to uh, like a Rust bridge sort of thing you know closure bridge or something like people have like marketing background and then I need to tell them it's a string now because they're learning Python for example and and I need to tell them what is a string you know string is is, is a thread or, or and I have to say okay it's a Character stringed together, or or something like that. Right. So like, my, we, we just call it text. You know, like, <laughs> why not call it text? Yeah. So, and uh, this makes sense to people who are native English speakers because they yeah. also understand that there is a there is a an idiom uh, that the string has unknown length. Hmm. Like like how long is a piece of string? Is something that you bring you 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 say as a child? Like, yeah. Hmm. Like well, this you know. And so how long is a piece of string? We don't know. And yeah. so that is, it's trying to be cute. That's why it's called mm. a string. It's, uh, okay. and or at least that's my understanding. It's like a folk etymology. Probably. <laughs> I mean, this is the thing, like we, we, we got, uh, you know, at least me, like we got so used to these terms. We, we don't need to think about where does it come from anymore because a ah, string is a string of characters. Like move on, you know, string is string, mm -hmm. you know, like, yeah. <laughs> but it yeah, can and, be called text, you know. That, that's right. And we have this other problem, which is related exactly you brought it up. It's like, well, threads, they sound related to strings because the metaphors yeah. sound really like really related. Hmm. But actually, yeah, yeah, they're completely different <laughs> internally. And also, what the heck is a thread? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. like, 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 what are you going on? Like, are we building cloth? Like, are we like, yeah. we, do we have a loom? Uh, <laughs> you know, like, uh, I find the... The problem, well, the problem, like as if I'm some yeah. kind of. Uh, <laughs> well, there, a, there is only one problem in the world. Right now. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's yes. right. right. So, 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 a problem with technology is that yeah. uh, naming is very, very difficult. And mm. the other thing is that names stick. And so uh, we have a problem where terms that were created in the 60s, and I think string and, and, and thread. Uh, probably two of them that made sense mm. to an audience of educated white programmers mm. from Europe or uh, the USA predominantly mm. in the 60s are not able to change. Now, everyone, if you are a Thai programmer, mm. you just mm. have to learn. Yep. You know, it's like learning a foreign language when you suddenly say, well, these are the grammatical rules and here are the list of you know, common words that all have exceptions to them. Like every yeah. person attempting to learn uh, any spoken language will be given the rules. And then also the mm. subset of exceptions that you just have to learn by heart because that's what mm. happens. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, yeah, so no, what no, drove that point home for me was I, at some point was uh, reading code written by Japanese people. And uh, mm. they... I, this piece of code, they didn't give variables any meaningful names. A variable would just be like A012, A013, A014. 
and and then the comments would be in Japanese, which I also couldn't read. Um, like it didn't make sense to me until I was talking to one one of the programmers, and well, he just didn't speak English or like five words. So he learned to program, and like he just learned all the syntax by heart. Like they're just keywords. Like it just, it's not even that. Like he probably can't really read them. They're just blobs. You know, mm. it's kind of like, well, these four, four characters do this and these four characters do that, but like, it's no idea of the meaning of the original underlying English. And so it's a bit the same with all the, all the, all the variable names, because he'll read an example somewhere and it'll, it'll use idiomatic English variable names, but they don't make sense to this person because he just mm. does not speak English. And so they're just characters for him to just use characters, you know, it's just a bunch of characters for variable. And this is kind of what he saw in, in examples. Um, so they're more like then, hieroglyphics or something. Yes. So, and then, and then yeah. effectively, as I piped the, the Japanese comments through Google Translate, like the comments would actually sort of indicate what all the variables were, like it would describe it in, mm. in the... So, so that, that was an eye-opener for me, which was kind of... Which was... Because I learned English at a very young age. And so it was... Came came easy for me to sort of learn all the, the programming lang- language stuff, but if if you if you're like you said like a, th- a Thai programmer or a Japanese program, you have very limited English knowledge. This is all very. I mean, you just learn this by heart. You know, like it has yeah. no meaning. I mean, that, that's something that that I I faced as well because until 15 years of my age, you know, all my education was in my own language called Telugu. Mm. including mathematics, science, and everything was in my language. So triangle is not called triangle. It's my language called trikonam. So mm. I learned trikonam has this, even every theorems are in, in my own language. And then when I was 16, I had to switch to English. And the first year was, was, was hell because I have, I mean, I know everything. I know the, the, the concepts. I know the, you know, what a triangle is and, and what Pythagorean theorem is. I never heard the word theorem. I only heard Siddhantam, you know, like that, like that word. And everything was translated until then. And even in science, like all the, all the, you know, chemical stuff uh, mm. is, you know, translated into my own language. And, and I learned all this stuff for 15 years. And then suddenly I had to, I mean, I knew English like alphabet a bit, you know, like words, cat, mat, whatever, that kind of shit. And then suddenly everything, uh, because higher education in India, you have to switch to English and everything was in English. So it was it was a disaster first year, you know, probability and everything, mathematics like sets, limits, everything has I, I knew my own language term and I had to keep a dictionary to understand what this means. So mm. it's 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 kind of limiting uh that that whole computing world, you know, revolves around English, right? that th- there is not much we can do actually. Well, probably not, but it must happen at some stage. I think that Mm. There, at least, I mean, a good place to start potentially could be increasing the awareness of uh, mm. uh, of the programming community that mm. um, that actually the the USA is not the like is not this well in, in many senses it is the center of the programming world, but actually, yeah. even though it is maybe the center doesn't necessarily mean that the rest of the world doesn't exist. Uh, whereas yeah. I think, well, a programming language is something that is developed probably by one person for four or five years. And then yeah. you kind of share it with the world once you're kind of happy with it. And I think the similar thing yeah. happened with Rust. Uh, mm. 
And, you know, lots and lots of programming languages. It's developed for one yeah. person for a long time. Yeah. And so yeah. trying to tell someone, oh, you need to write a programming language, you need a package manager, you need like all of the standard library. <laughs> and by the way, you need to make sure that you create a whole bunch of new terms that, uh, that no one else yeah. uses because we need to be more accessible to people. Yeah, I, it's it's difficult to know what 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 next what the next best step would be, and uh, yeah, but I mean there, there is this this friction, right? I mean, the advantage is that now we can because we have an agreed set of terms, it's easy to communicate with each other. I mean, if if it proliferates into, I mean, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't you know um, uh, put the burden of understanding Telugu words to to, to then. I mean, of course, it's like third or fifth biggest uh, largest spoken language but because you know india is you know, huge so <laughs> you <laughs> automatically you have lots of people speaking a language but you know if i keep using those words then the, the burden of, of communication becomes very tricky right because th- there are so many ways you can explain the same concept in in different languages well, one of the advantages that go has is that you can have internationalized characters inside you know, mm. UTA identifiers or UTFA mm. identifiers. And I wonder yeah. whether or not tutorials and so forth and examples uh, made it, could make it easier to say that your variable names and your class names, for example, are, mm-hmm. uh, are not, you know, string, you know, A, Q, D, you know, and not just English, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, like Latin characters, the Latin, but they yeah, actually yeah. mean something underneath it. So that if you are, uh, so that, you know, you could toggle between natural languages as well. I think that localization, um, you know, it, it would only be one small step. Uh, yeah, but but uh, do, do do you want to do you want to refactor the code that has emojis? As <laughs> shit everywhere. <laughs> that, that, that's going to be fun. Yeah. <laughs> Why not? Huh? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, I feel <laughs> I, I, like the, yeah, the tooling could could deal with. I think that you know you could have. I could imagine a pre a preprocessor that maybe you could say like for simple nouns, probably you could have. But it, uh, it'll be it'll be probably slightly easier. But at the same time, you have a lot of confusion regarding what this what this emoji means. I mean, I mean, in, in the case of NTP example, if you have a if you have a enum called clock or something, you can just put the clock emoji there, which is pretty nice, cool, and and interesting. But then you end up saying. You know, is this a boolean? Like somebody will say, you know, upward thumb or downward thumb or whatever, or yes or no. And <laughs> this is going to get super complicated. Pretty soon. <laughs> well, Fair you way. could say that. Look, this is a similar problem we have with like free text now. It's just a problem yeah. with teams, you know, and like team communication and team style. And yeah. uh, not that that fixes anything, it just pushes the burden to the team itself. You know, this is the same yeah. issue that. Uh, but yeah, I, I still think we one, can... one thing I'd, yeah, one thing I'd be, inter- I'm sorry, uh, one thing yeah, I'd be ahead. interested in is seeing what a language would look like that's designed by, for example, Alibaba. Because, yeah. you know, often or nowadays languages are often sponsored by big companies. So Google sponsored Go and, they, you know, uh, Mozilla famously sponsored Rust. And I, I'd like to see like a very big Chinese company, you know, and Alibaba is probably as big as Google is to sort of say like at some point, like, Hey, you know, maybe we need our own language and kind of what that looks like, you know, wh- where would they differ? Like, would they, would they, would they stick with, with some of the, you know, English language idioms that we already know or would they change them or, um, that I think just, yeah, it'd be interesting to see. 
I, I don't know where it would go, but it would be interesting. My expectation is that right now, unless they were very courageous, you would mm. probably see something that looks a lot like something produced elsewhere. Yeah. Because mm, yeah. I, I think of Ruby, for example. Yeah, uh, exactly. Yes. Yeah. Uh, as one example. Um, and there are other, there are actually, I've, I looked a few years ago, actually, and there's a very small list of programming languages that do not use English keywords uh, in, hmm. in Wikipedia. Uh, my suspicion, though, is the the gravity, or you know, it'd be very, very difficult to to create an, to a new paradigm. Uh, I mean, yeah. it doesn't mean that people should not try, but also, I think. I mean, if if you if you want, because there is there is a bias of. Uh, other people need to use it, right? There is there is a fundamental, you know, hope that my the programming language that you're going to create will be used by people. I mean, I know, I know, like uh, there is this esoteric languages list page somewhere on the internet. Like you can you can make your program by using this Mondrian bitmaps. So you can just draw the <laughs> okay draw the shape. So your hello world is basically like this grid of colors. And I don't think any you know, that, that that's universal. But I'm not gonna write that code in that shit. It's not possible for me that's to read. A counter example <laughs> in probably the biggest language in the world, Excel is translated. Oh yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. All your function names are translated into the local language. Yeah, yeah. interesting. So yeah, they I actually do this. Excel. Yeah, okay. yeah. yeah. Okay. If you use the Dutch version or something, then you see all yeah. the all the stuff in in Dutch. local uh, yeah. things. So, yeah. Instead of yeah. some, I mean, it's close enough. But um, <laughs> but yeah, like they yeah. they translate all the functions. So yeah, I mean, it's yeah. possible. So I think looping back to the to the Rust a bit because I'm sure you know some of the audience would be interested in in <laughs> knowing about Rust in our podcast. Potentially, um, potentially yeah. Uh, first of all, I mean, if you're listening to this podcast and if you have written code using emojis, just tweet us, you know, uh, the, you, your code <laughs> snippet. We'd or love Montreal, to enjoy it. Like, I think it's called Pete. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, Pete. Language. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So any any of the esoteric languages, if you have written something, so tweet us, you know, uh, your, your code uh, snippet, then we'd be happy to give you some interesting gift for you. Uh, you know, uh, probably a code for uh, Tim's uh, book. So you can escape the hell of writing your code in emoji and then write code in rust by learning from tim's book so that that would be interesting uh, so looking back to rust uh, uh concepts um so obviously from from the python world um there is a bit of functional thing catching up in, in python world a bit uh, but mostly python would you say it's an object-oriented programming language right yeah so yeah so, yeah, so larger so programs the... in rust how do you how do you see Right. So this, uh, so Python is definitely an object-oriented programming language. It uses inheritance mm. quite a lot. There has been, mm. as you mentioned, uh, a slight counter movement <clears throat> or a movement towards functional programming as the language has matured and has a as a larger community of programmers have used it. Uh, and so you can see this, for example, there's a, a quite a famous like famous in the Python community talk mm. of uh, you know never define a class excuse me I just mm. and within rust we see that there are no classes and mm. what we and, and I'm given this this tool a trait like 
And again, right. a term that I've never heard of before, like, is this strength? <laughs> is this, is this like yeah, yeah. a trait? Is this uh, like some kind of characteristic? Are we writing a, like an RPG now? Like what? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, no. So a trait is easy to understand if you think of it as an abstract base, base class or as mm-hmm. a an interface, if interface, y- yeah. you have used Java or a similar mm-hmm. language to that. Another term you could potentially use would be protocol, where you say mm-hmm. that uh, if you have, you know, you want to be able to read from a file or read from some other object in, in double quotes, mm-hmm. they need to be able to implement a reader trait, which is which would be effectively it's you need to, uh, if you were to think about subclassing from a reader abstract base class, that would provide you with maybe two methods, read and seek. That is the same mm-hmm. thing that you would see in Rust. Now, yeah. so you do have this ability to compose types within Rust. And in fact, I find it surprisingly good. Uh, I've mm. also used um, um, Go relatively heavily. Uh, so at work, we have a large Go project with over a million lines of code. And I find the duck typing aspect of Go really difficult for me to understand mm. what's going on because I don't know by looking at a structs implementation, like a structs definition, which what it actually implements. You know, I see some, mm. I see a struct being defined and I see a whole bunch of methods there and I've got my receiver pointer back to the thing and I'm like, well, actually, what do you implement? Um, mm. And it turns out that this is all kind of, um, it's all it's all loose and fun and free and it's great. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but yeah. for me, as someone that is learning the project, I would really like to know, like, have I implemented the reader type correctly? You mm, know. Yeah. Uh, now, of course, the tooling will tell me that I've made a mistake, but sometimes yeah. uh, it's I, I find it really really difficult. And one of the things mm. that I enjoy about Rust is that what a type implements. Is very explicit and use and, mm-hmm. and and I also really like you know do we talk mentioned Ruby before one of the cool things about Ruby is that you can extend quite famously Rails does oh, this. Yeah, you can extend yeah. the uh, the built-in types Array or whatever yeah yeah and so in you know Rails added a whole bunch of of extensions yes. to the standard library and yeah. so suddenly people who wrote Ruby on Rails or that's why they learned Ruby. <laughs> couldn't work, use the same thing when they actually did pure mm. Ruby, but that's kind of another problem. Yeah. Uh, yeah. In Rust, you can extend the any type that you want as long as the interface that is the abstract base class is in your local scope. Mm. And I find yeah. that a really, really powerful or really interesting feature. We can mm. overload operators. We can uh, add new methods to integers if we want to. and mm. Now, it's, I'm not saying that every every you know should do it all the time, but I think that the fact that it's there and the fact that it's ergonomic and the fact that it's very readable and very understandable as someone who's looking at a new code base, um, hmm. I found very helpful. And so, yeah, I, I still think. Well, so so to kind of go back to the earlier question about like, is Python able to be written, or is it does it support large code bases? I think, yes, it does. This trade functionality is very composable. I'm able to kind of build up 
what I want. Uh, mm. and the and the other thing, the other side of it is that, you know, from a pragmatic point of view, we can see that with these very large companies adopting Rust, that in mm. practice, Rust has also proven to be useful for large programs. Mm. So if you see, because as I said, I mean, you you can you can get get a lot of mileage not knowing all the complex features of of uh, of Rust. Um, because I don't need to know uh, box, dine, you know, single quote, blah, blah, something, and, you know, like super complicated type signatures and whatnot. I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not, um, I'm not, I, I'm a bit familiar with that because I come from Java and Scala. So I know a bit of a type magic happens in Scala as well. Um, so is there any, uh, performance difference between writing programs using these, these, uh, quote unquote, you know, more advanced, advanced concepts versus, right, yeah. right. So there are, so you touched on one, which was this dying thing. So you, yeah. if you are new to Rust, what, uh, the terminology that you will be introduced to is a, is yeah. a thing called a trait object. A trait object, mm -hmm. and I apologize for the terminology. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, a trait object is a, uh, is, it, it, what you're actually saying to the compiler is, I don't know which type, which concrete type will be passed to you. Mm -hmm. However, I can promise you that it will implement the interface or it will implement a given type. So yep. uh, Rust by default will create a new function under the hood for every concrete type that calls every function. This, uh, so in effect, if I use a generic, if I use generic code yep. and I call a, uh, and, and I call that, I define a function that takes a generic type and I end up calling yep. it with four different types inside mm -hmm. the binary that is created by the compiler. There will be four versions of the code. Okay. I'll, I'll, and the, and we use this, uh, this thing called static dispatch. So the, Compiler knows what using the type information, which function to call. Now in the mm -hmm. source code, there's one definition in the concrete, in the actual binary, there's four. With a trait mm -hmm. object, you have only one instance of the binary. So it looks, the binary matches much more closely what the, uh, um, what the source code does. And in fact, code. Yeah. Yeah. So, now, going back to your thing, so so that's that one. Now, do you need mm -hmm. to know this to start? Well, probably not. And mm. I would almost say that you probably don't need generics while you're starting. You can write multiple mm -hmm. code, multiple functions yourself, like as you're going. Um, yeah. Now, once you encounter someone else's code um, <laughs> that uses these kind of more like <laughs> difficult features, uh, yeah. then um, <laughs> life becomes a little bit more challenging. You know, you can either take one or two options. One is you just use the code as is. Like if you're implementing yeah. a library, you don't really care about like its internals. Like that's the whole thing about interfaces. We just care about the interface. Um, mm -hmm. Now, in terms of performance, uh, the trait object route will, I'm sorry, route if you're American, mm -hmm. will, mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> like it has a really complicated story in terms of performance. Mm. Most of the time, you will slow down the function because yeah. you suddenly need 
to the, the, the compiler cannot dispatch to the function at compile time or using the static dispatch. So we need yeah, dynamic yeah. dispatch. Uh, now, dynamic dispatch incurs an extra pointer redirection. So we yeah. kind of need to do... So there are certainly multiple instructions to be run to... Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. To, to, to point to the... Yeah. So, uh, but uh -huh, on the other side, there is both a data cache and a CP uh, and an instruction case cache inside mm -hmm. your CPU. Mm -hmm. And if you are, have a, bit, a very, very hot loop yep. and lots of types going in and on, it can be more efficient to cache the, the, uh, the single function inside the CPU mm. cache and then access it with multiple types as you're going along. So yeah. the story is slightly mm. more complicated. The other thing is obviously, if you're only compiling one function, you suddenly have 25% of the binary size. Like, mm. uh, so you're actually the code that you're generating is, is smaller. Um, yeah. Now, one other, the other thing in terms of should I use higher order programming and like filter and map and flat map and yeah, all yeah. of these other functions that, mm. um, that say a Scala programmer would love. Um, or a Haskell program, or you know yeah. anyone from the functional uh, functional world. Um, yeah. The, my answer is probably because it turns mm. out that the compiler is able to optimize those uh, because they're so declarative. It is able to generate very very optimized code. Mm. Now, the difference for most programs will be in microseconds or milliseconds. And so I would not be too concerned if you're writing mm. for loops yeah. to, like, to suddenly say that and you need to stop programming and suddenly need to learn how to use these higher <laughs> Like maps and, yeah. That's right. So, yeah, you will, yeah. So, uh, so <clears throat> the advantage is that you are delegating the a lot more to the compiler by using mm. a more declarative style. Mm. Um, and that in Rust, Rust is a very good optimizing compiler and will mm. um, make your programs run very, very quickly and it will use very little memory. Uh, if mm. you take your own, if you take back control and say, look, I would like full control uh, and I want to use my, uh, my, you know, I want to use a for loop because I understand that mm. and it's easy to read, mm. then, um, the compiler has less opportunity to make those decisions itself. Mm. Mm. So another thing that I've found is if you use uh, for loops, you, you typically need a lot less type annotations because the type inference can generally sort it out if you start using map, reduce, and fold, and what have you. Um, if for simple cases, you also don't need to annotate. But I found like in my side project that very often if I tried to write it more functional, I needed to give a lot more type annotations. Um, to sort of get it through the compiler. And um, it often makes the code a lot less readable. I personally like the functional style, but often like I'll have like, you know, a very long type annotation right next to it to sort of make the closure. Um, mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. I I believe, yeah, I, I, I can understand that frustration. Uh, I have a little bit of an understanding of the implementation. So <laughs> I understand why that's a problem. So uh, if, if you're interested, uh, one of the things that Rust does when it creates a closure is that it actually creates mm. an anonymous type. Um, hmm. And so the uh, and closures, so just uh, again, as, a, as an interesting tangent, structs, enums, 
and closures all share the same internal representation. Oh. In Rust, a closure will enclose, so that is it will take the, the variables that are accessed from the environment uh, and mm. save them as local variables as if you had defined a struct to take to accept them. Um, mm. And so you kind of have this additional type that is not visible inside your source code. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think that's maybe why you need, and because, uh, yeah, yeah, I, yeah, so I can definitely understand why for loops might be easier. And in fact, mm. that's why they're in, that's why, you know, this is why I have accepted criticism from, this, mm. from, you know, Rust developers or people who are experienced Rust programmers in my own material. Because I have mm. made, tried to write code that is readable and understandable for my readership, you know, mm, and yeah. unfortunately, it's not a neomatic. It is, uh, in many senses, less elegant and less, you know, it it isn't as beautiful, uh, <laughs> but it's understandable, yeah. and and I'm hopeful more, that it's more accessible. And again, I go back to this thinking that there's plenty of time to learn the advanced. Uh, mm. Like if yeah, concepts, you know yeah. yeah the advanced concepts so so if mm-hmm. I if I'm curious about Rust and I am a Java developer or a uh, C sharp developer and mm-hmm. I pick up a book because I'm interested because there's lots of noise about Rust well you know I don't want to suddenly be told that I need to use idioms that are completely alien to me it just adds another mm-hmm. layer of difficulty to learn the language. We already have different concepts. We have different terminology. We've got different syntax. Mm. <laughs> yeah. um, so uh, new idioms as well. And so, yeah, I, I, I think that, um, I think you're perfectly valid to just stay with four loops if that makes makes more sense to you. Yeah. But I think, I think um, so because I, I've never programmed in Go. I think Walter has way more experience in Go than than I have. I mean, like at least a million times more, obviously. I, I've only seen Go's homepage, so that's my Go experience. So <laughs> <laughs> I know it's a programming language, so that's 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 pretty much what I can think of. Uh-huh. Um, I'm curious what you what you both think um, comparing Go with Rust, because Go is supposed to be like you know easy to learn language, blah blah blah, and you know. At some point, there was an internet joke that you know it's for stupid programmers or something, you know, some, some something like that. Yeah. Um, so, how how do you see Go versus versus Rust? So, I think it's a question for both of you, actually. So, okay, okay. Well, I'll go first because uh, Go I first. L- no, right. Rust first. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I learned Rust first, uh, okay. and about 20, 2012, 2013. So about twenty when when Rust was first announced. Go, uh, Go and Rust were announced relatively, uh, almost at the same time. And they kind mm. of look like spiritual, they look like competitors. One was produced by Google. One was produced by Mozilla. Uh, yeah. Rust was explicit that they were going to write a programming language to an, they were going to write a programming language so that they could write a new browser because yeah. the C was not able to work for them. Go mm. was not sure about, well, wanted to be able to make it easy to write big software or at least make it easier for Google to write code that performs well enough. I think that over the time, over time, uh, Rust 
definitely went uh, the go became very prominent very very quickly mm. and and mm. gained lots of adoption much much faster and rust yep. took a lot longer it took a lot longer to stabilize it there were uh, it wasn't until 2015 that I think 1.0 was created and mm. or maybe even later than that and mm. uh, by that stage go already had millions of productive um, professional mm. go developers and yep. so my experience is that Go is an easier language to learn. Mm -hmm. uh, that Go's community is very clear that simplicity is a virtue and that uh, there are idioms that you learn as a Go programmer that are adopted by the whole community that make programming mm -hmm. very simple. But <laughs> okay. <laughs> There's always a but. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah, that's hey, right. Hey, this 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 podcast is is for us. So obviously, you know, <laughs> people understand we are biased here. So yeah, right, please right, go right, on. right, right. So, but yeah. I learned go last, and uh, yeah, I was so frustrated that it didn't include enums, uh, mm. like uh, the support yeah. for the Rust, it, like. Uh, like it's just it's it's so nice. Mm. Like, why would a modern language not include this? Uh, mm. I don't need to compare strings anymore. I don't need to cast to types to find out like and and use runtime inflection, uh, like mm. runtime reflection. Sorry, to figure out yeah, like yeah. what type I'm actually using. This uh. Uh, and additionally, there are some other things that I just find so annoying. One of them <laughs> is that uh, the by convention. Only by convention, the zero with so the empty uh, instance, so that is for an integer a zero, or like is assumed to mean to also mean stand in for like it is not no. present. Yeah, and I'm like, but 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 what 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 if like why does this make sense to anybody? <laughs> like like and, and and I mean it works in practice. In practice, though, and this is I think the the, the goal approach is to say that look, mm. let's be pragmatic. You can mm. be theoretically pure, but a Go programmer is always going to be more. Uh, it's going to be uh, like if it works, it works, and I yeah. think. Uh, Adding in a new language feature, so whether or not that's uh, that's that's enums, and for example, uh, like that's a massive cost in terms of language, in terms of learning, yeah. and so yeah. we are going to prefer tools that work almost all the time. And I mean, I mean, I find it like nil pointers. Yeah. The, zero, uh, the things that I really frustrate me about Go would be mm. this empty type means not present. Uh, Mm. Nil pointers, I think I just I just, I still get nil pointer dereferences all the time. And I'm like, ah! <laughs> like, like as, a, <laughs> as a beginner programmer, I'm just or as a beginner Go programmer, I just find it so frustrating. Like, why is the compiler still allowing this? Like, are we in like uh -huh. why? <laughs> I don't understand. And the other thing yeah. is uh is this dynamic is is not being able to declare which interfaces I'm implementing. And so yeah. uh like and that isn't part of that's a different problem. That's only me coming into large projects. I'm mm -hmm. like, well, what do you implement? Mm. And if I'm refactoring code, have I done it correctly? Because mm. uh, there's another idiom inside the Rust community, or inside, sorry, inside the Go community, or at least it's been mm -hmm. adopted by our project, which is that mm -hmm. 
uh, as a consequence of the fact that every all the import hierarchy in Go is a tree, we copy mm-hmm. types, and so we re, we we implement a local definition of some type rather than calling on a rather than using a core definition of a type that we use in multiple places in the code base. It's copied multiple times, mm-hmm. and we also create new interfaces. Uh, that are local, that are private to a particular module. Now, I don't yeah. know if this is mm. a, a, the Goedium, but it's definitely used in our project. And so there might be four or five different definitions of a particular interface, and the uh, and your type might be implementing three of them, but not yeah. like the fourth one, which is a slight customization for the local thing. And so, uh, mm. yeah. yeah, so, so, annoying. yeah, so, uh, so I think those are my frustrations with Go. <laughs> yeah, but Walter, I mean, you you're on the reverse path, right? You you, you had Go before already, and then yeah. you move you started learning Rust. So yeah. so can you defend <laughs> some of these no, things on no, Go? All or of these like, are all, all of these are super valid criticisms, and especially like the empty means you know not present. So mm. Google also adopted this in Protobuf, mm. trying to write uh, a decent interface definition. You know, where, well, some things are optional is, I mean, I I have some gray hairs because of dealing with this. So, um, they, I feel your pain. Like they're all valid criticisms, but I'm for me, I've, because I mean, the question often gets asked because both languages present themselves as like system level programming languages. And I don't think that the comp, I mean, that they're solving for the same problem, actually. Mm. Um, I think Rust is a lot more ambitious. And mm. Rust initially was also aiming for more lower level. I mean, it was really aiming for like, okay, the stuff that we still shell out to C for, the stuff that we still sell, sell out to C++ for, you know, because we mm. need, we, we can't incur the cost of a, of a garbage collector because we can't, you know, because we need some control over memory, right? Which mm. you... Um, that that's where where Rust was aiming. That's not where Go was aiming. So mm-hmm. Go is basically Google's version of Python. That they yeah. had a lot of Python stuff, and deploying Python um, um, is, hard, yeah, is hard. Is <laughs> hard. I'm just gonna just gonna in one word virtual env right. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, and if you look at it that way, there's a whole a whole bunch of trade offs Go makes. I mean, can be explained, I think, which yeah, is yeah. everything compiles to a static binary. No more kerfuffle mm. into getting this in production. It's just one binary, what have you, like no, no dependency hassle there. Um, mm. The second one is the compiler needs to be fast. Mm. It's like they want it to feel like an interpreted language. You know, mm. it's like so go mm. like, small, you can write a small child script and just do go run and it will interpret or actually compile and run as fast as Node will interpret it for you. Yeah. Or at least it feels like that, which is what they were aiming for. Um, mm. Rust emphatically does not do that. They're like, well, hey, if we need to spend 10 more times compiling this, then that's fine because <laughs> it will run a million times more than, but that was not the design goal for Go, right? This is not yeah. how they wanted it to feel. Um, same like with the big standard library versus the small standard library. So actually, I don't think like the comparison is actually super valid. Like they're really mm. solving for different cases. And mm. so I don't see it as an either or. Uh, yeah, yeah. There's 
there's places where I will reach out to Go because I am doing, you know, if my Bash script gets too large, I will write a Go, I will write a small Go, pro- go mm-hmm. program to do it because yeah. it's kind of like the obvious next step. Um, yeah. If, if, you know. But, yeah, go, go as a bit of Python is a really, uh, like, that, that, that's kind of an insightful, that's a very insightful comment from, from my point of view. That, that uh, if you were, um, so me as a data scientist, one of the things that we would often do is you know, process hundreds of megabytes or terabytes of um, of data, mm-hmm. and uh, and these jobs would take several hours. And the, the thing that you hated the morning would be like, oh, like type error to disappear yeah. in your program <laughs> in the like, somewhere. Like, like, yeah. like, 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 and I'm like, what? <laughs> like, like, like every everything passes it's all good it's all fine but uh but 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 python has this problem where it's too easy to uh, like uh. and 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 putting making it faster and making it uh more yeah easier to get onto production machines i think are huge and mm. go is you know it did teach or it has it continues to teach a new generation or you know like it's been able to say that if you have written another language you can write fast mm. code this is accessible to you so that that same mm. thing that attracted me to rust like right at the start mm. which was you know finally you've got a language that you can write safe native extensions in you can yep. do mm. like go was able to say that you don't need to be a genius to go fast mm. Mm. yeah no, so I think Rust is pretty much yeah. Go ahead, Gord. No, I was saying I I, I totally agree. Um, I, I think what 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 drives me to Rust is that I think Rust is a lot more ambitious, and I think Rust allows us to tackle new problems. Actually, I think like Rust, just the fact like some stuff which you had to use C for, but you didn't dare to, like it becomes accessible. Mm-hmm. I think you know. Um, and and it's a change because it has some new concepts. It's a change in how you think about programs, and that will translate into like different programs, and like it raises the bar a bit more at the expense of being maybe a bit harder to learn or whatever. But that's what really interests me, you know, in with, with Rust. And so I I don't see it as like one versus the other. I really see as like there's some complementary stuff. Like for some things mm. goes really what you want and it's it's accessible but in for some other things which you know are really important you really don't want to type error it really needs to go fast you really need to ma- manage memory yeah you know, rust is really awesome yeah. <laughs> it's very, very yeah and it uh it's growing very fast actually one of the things yeah. that um so rust is you know five years in a row the world's you know all stack overflow's favorite programming mm. language uh, mm. And <clears throat> at first, I was suspicious of this metric. You know, for mm-hmm. the first year, I was like, "Well, the like, it's eighty something percent of the twelve Rust programmers." <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. uh, but it consistently impresses the people who take the time, and I think this yeah. ambition uh, is is real. That mm. the industry has decided that. We should not blow up spacecraft anymore from uh, yeah. like integer overflow. Like, or yeah. integer overflow is a slightly different case. But like, like, like <laughs> yeah. we shouldn't expose our users to security problems that are 
fixable. Mm, like yes, we, yep. they, they should be completely preventable. Uh, mm. We shouldn't be able to have, you know, one X or mediocre developers, you know, working as a team to should be able yep. to produce reliable software. And yes. yep. that should not expose our user base to security vulnerabilities. And the, like, they're not, they're not even, mm. it's not, they're not necessary. They are, in some senses, and I mean, this is a, like an inflammatory statement, so I apologize to see what's not so good. But <laughs> I think they're reckless now. I think if you yeah. are running, if you're writing with, you know, like raw pointers and buffers to memory, then, mm. and you're not adding guard pages and so forth outside, you know, because it it's dangerous. Uh, mm, we yeah. cannot trust, you know, our, we cannot trust the software that runs on the rest of our computer. You think of how many dependencies a node package pulls in yeah, mm, yeah. and how easily it is to have side channel attacks that yeah. suddenly grant the whole computer uh, to a, <laughs> like a ninth, <laughs> like not a third party yeah. dependency, yeah. but a dependency of a dependency of a dependency of a dependency. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah like <laughs> exponent, exponent, nth dependency, whatever. That's right. Yeah, nth order dependency. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, like at the moment, we have this problem where, yeah, it, it, we, there's a large class of bugs that have, you know, both Microsoft and Google like, via the Chromium project, as well as Microsoft's mm. security research um, team. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Said that seventy percent of their high to like medium to high bugs are security exploits created mm. by the problems from like C strings, like pointer mm. and a uh, and null terminator. Memory safety issues. Yes. Yeah, memory mm. safety issues. Yeah. So yeah. and like we can completely eliminate those. And so mm. if I think about it from like if I was a like if I was a an engineer of a building. And mm. someone said to me, look, there's this new material that will prevent 70% of failure by yep. like just by using it, like a new form of concrete. It looks exactly mm. the same as regular concrete. Yeah. But 70% of the times that cause buildings to fall over or collapse, like will never happen. Yeah. Like that, like you would go to court if you still use the old concrete. Yeah. Yeah. Like you would be accused of killing people. And, yeah, uh, yeah. And, and the next earthquake. And mm. I think that we need to remember as an industry that people's lives depend on software being reliable. And mm. Rust has the ability, and it, like, it isn't a perfect language. Like, there is no mm. perfect tool. Yeah. Mm. But it is the best tool that we have right now for changing, mm. for making software safe, and for protecting people's lives. And the other thing, from my point of view, is that we have a very, very big, like, we've got a climate crisis. This is real. Mm. This is happening. Yeah. Our climate, we have maybe a couple of decades before our, we're not able to go back. Yeah. And so to use very, very slow and like CPU intensive software for routine mm. tasks is inefficient. And I, you know, one of the reasons why I'm so excited about teaching new programmers or beginner programmers mm. Rust is that you can suddenly write programs that are that use significantly fewer resources. That means that mm. if you spin up a cloud instance or a container, it's going to be way faster and way cheaper 
but also mm. for the climate, it's going to mean that maybe, you know tens of millions of people running tens of hundreds of billions of containers, uh, yeah. they're suddenly all going to be so much less efficient. of yeah. so much more efficient that um, yeah. I, I'm hopeful that I'm, it's a much much longer play. And I haven't talked about it a lot, but I I'm yeah, yeah. optimistic actually that this is part of the solution as well. Yeah, I think that I think as you said, we we kind of got complacent, right? Especially you know um, having GCs and having all this uh, stuff at that runtime. I think uh, more and more we're like, yeah, sure, and I'm gonna pull in like a two thousand dependencies, and and yeah. at runtime I'm gonna do all this junk. Like, who yeah. cares? I, yeah. I think Tonsky wrote a post on this, a blog post. Maybe it's already two years ago. I don't really remember, but he was basically sort of saying where. All of our machines have gotten so fast. Why is my computer so slow? You know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. It does. It doesn't feel like we, uh, the computer is maybe you know uh, ten thousand times faster than it was um, like ten years ago or something. Why, why mm. do I need a RAM upgrade to run Slack? You know, it's it's. <laughs> I mean, obviously, I mean, it's a running joke. It's a meme by now, but it's also true. Yeah. You know, yeah. where where. Like this intuitively, like for for people who definitely have been around for a while, right? Where you know, um, like it shouldn't be like that. It's kind of like the resources yeah. we have available are, are are tremendous, are gigantic. It's kind of um, like before before we started recording, I was talking like I had a Commodore one twenty eight in my room, right? Because mm. uh, it was the computer that my dad bought for my mom to use, and then she bought a newer one in the early nineties, and I kind of got this relic on my room. And this didn't have a hard drive, you know, it just had two um, big floppies, not the small ones, the big <laughs> ones. And uh, so basically I had one with the operating system on and then in, in, in all the programs, right? And then one for the data. But so mm. I'm not, I don't even recall how big these are. They're they, they are uh, the, the, uh, like the, the big the five, uh, the five 14 part. inch um, discs. They yeah. yeah, I think they sort of eight hundred kilobytes. I think. Yeah, yeah, uh, because the yeah, yeah, like the smaller ones, the small floppies that were around for longer, they were like one point four meg. Yeah, one point four four. Yeah, yeah, and so but I think yeah, the, the bigger ones are like, like five hundred or or something. Or? No, but the, I mean they're older no, tech maybe rates. Less. So. <laughs> but eight hundred k, like eight hundred k. So eight hundred k has yeah. DOS two point has a text processor, has three games, <laughs> and yeah. like you know and. We might, and, and like effectively, it doesn't do that much more than what most people use their computer for. Obviously, it was all text based. Like, you know, I get it, textures take place, and we don't say yeah. we have to go back to that, you know, those type of restrictions. <laughs> but surely, right, <laughs> having <laughs> 1 billion time X shouldn't feel, you know, equal in performance. And, yeah, yeah. and kind of, uh, and that's why, you know, I use all these Rust tools on you know my CI because they they just they just feel so much faster. They feel so much better. If they they yeah. And like if you if you take that problem to the large, as Tim was saying, like that has actual. If you just look at the energy consumption of data centers, you know, mm. it, you, yeah, and you the know. cloud containers and everything. Exactly. It's, it's like if you can half yeah. that, that's yeah. that's 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 massive. Yeah. Yeah. So. Uh, I mean, apart from uh, you know obvious uh, impact on the resources and everything, um, Tim. So, what are the features that that you think are are your favorite in Rust? 
Oh, it's Enos. Yeah, like the okay. uh, <laughs> <laughs> spoken like, like a true like, Go programmer. Uh, yeah, like well, I, I go back to Python and I'm like, yeah. is it a result? Like, how can I recreate the result type or the option type in in, in yeah. Python? Like, uh, like uh, I and this is someone who loves absolutely loves Python's exceptions. Like, yeah, uh, or at least I thought I did. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like the um. Yeah, so the things that I really enjoy about Rust, uh, the um, uh, actually the thing that I really enjoy about Rust as an everyday programmer would be cargo. <laughs> it's not actually part of the language, but it's kind of part yeah. of the tooling. And the fact mm -hmm. that uh, that dependency management is solved. So yeah. I have attempted to compile numpy which is a the python numeric package um yeah. and you know like i've i've i'm the kind of person who you know occasionally compiles their own kernel and so forth and so yeah. uh like if i try to include libraries from some obscure c++ dependency and like if i have to work with them like if i a C++ project might use one of 20 different uh, build systems and they yeah. might have uh, different ways to like build the thing. In Rust, thankfully, they, some, you know, Cargo was written and it works. And I think mm. you know, it's not part of the language per se, but it's probably one of the things that makes, you know, that sparks joy uh, most yeah. often. Yeah. <laughs> is that if I, it is, it is. Yeah. It's kind of in you know these days just writing a compiler is 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 not enough right i mean the, the tooling around it and how do you define the dependency management how do you share code essentially and and how to deliver the stuff as well and that, that's all part and parcel of the whole programming experience these days when I mean, most of the time you'll be typing most of that stuff and then then original you know uh, code that you are compiling actually i think that's true i think that uh, it it you know if you were, I keep some, some part of me, I mean, I, um, my first computer was an Apple II and, mm -hmm. uh, I said, so this is a, I was, and, uh, I think I was six, about 1990. Anyway, the, um, one thing that I've always missed was I never learned Pascal and mm. I feel like, I feel like. Programming would have been a lot better if we had stuck with Pascal, uh, yeah. because you wouldn't have like, well, basically, uh, you know, I, for whatever reason, C one and uh, yeah. the, uh, but you wouldn't have had this problem of mm. like like null terminated strings, yeah, yeah. and yeah, mm. um, yeah so. I've sort of forgotten your question. Sorry, I just uh, what were you like? I was just thinking <laughs> no, no, about like I, old tech. I was just saying that the, the 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 language itself is is oh is yeah yeah right. So, the whole, so if, whole... if yeah, so yeah. if you were uh, Niklas Wert today, mm. like he would not have been able to release Pascal as just a Pascal implementation. Um, yeah, he he would have required a, a standard library. With yeah. uh, and like he would have had to consume like web APIs, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> like and and so forth, and he would have required his uh, like a a playground interpreter, 
like with so he would need to have the resources to pay for like the financial resources to pay for a server to be able to interpret mm. and compile code uh, on yeah. a web service he would need yeah. a package manager he would require yeah. um you know he would probably well, hosting you know, all these packages somewhere yeah, yeah like yeah the, the, even the bandwidth costs for hosting the package management i mean it's like yeah. billions mm, of yeah. files and um it's difficult and he would also require the um the financial resources to um like travel to conferences i mean this year is different right yeah. but um yeah you know, yeah you know you kind of need to promote it which means kind of traveling and, and outreach and so yeah. forth and, mm. then, and then he was at um ETH, so um in zurich so it's a little bit different now mm. um so he probably did have the access to travel and so forth i know that he's been a couple of years in um in the bay area uh mm. now uh, that's what he wrote Oberon, I believe. Anyway, um, yeah, he would not be able to just release Pascal. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. So I think that that that's why I think most of the uh, programming languages these days are, are, are having these huge corporations. I mean, we're, we're pretty much divided in terms of the top ten languages. If you see there, they are sponsored by big uh, organizations these days, right? There, there is not a tiny homegrown artisanal programming languages somewhere like Pete, and, and you can just use that one. <laughs> yeah. so I mean, they, they still are. They, they definitely don't have mainstream traction. There's still a lot of, I mean, I feel like programming language research is very active, and there's a lot of interesting things happening. But for the mainstream ones, like you said, you need all these things for people to be productive. Yeah, And so like, there's, uh, yeah. If you don't have a ton of money, um, but when we were talking about build systems, though, I had to I had to think of in an, in embedded programming, lots of um, C is still used, and so I've seen this a few times where they were saying like, yeah, our you know our software is open source, but the build tool mm. isn't. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, you can actually get the code, but you can't compile it. You have yeah. to you have to get a license for their build tool, which costs a million. Like the code's all out there, but there's no way to actually build an image that you can run. Yeah. Wow! And you need to flash it to their device, and that requires the the whole tool chain. Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, the, the um, there are a few languages that are trying, and I think mm. one of them. So, uh, one of them, I think, I feel sorry for. In fact, they're both of them. I feel sorry for one is Nim. Uh, yeah, and yes, another really one nice. would would be D, uh, and yeah. to a, actually just thinking about it now, just that would be Zig. I think Zig is also yeah, Zig, like a yeah. super cool language uh, mm. written by one guy who uh, is basically living off Patreon donations, from what I can tell, and yeah. uh, that is ridiculously ambitious, and I think mm. like uh, courageous. But also, mm. uh, like, it's not the kind of project that I would want to take on for my own self, right? If I think of the <laughs> kinds of things that I, like, if I wanted to have a project that would define my life, because this would be a decades-long thing. Uh, yeah, like, yeah. Uh, you think of any long-established programming language, their creator is associated with that. Uh, maybe, uh, or... Uh, Actually, I'm just thinking of the large industrial programming languages less so, right? So Java, um, it was Bill Story that created it, wasn't it, in the, in the 90s? Um, I can't remember. He was at Sun. Uh, oh, go back. 
And sorry, I think we, we we lost your your audio for a for a moment. All right. Okay. Yeah. So, oh, so sorry. Yeah. The large industrial programming languages you wouldn't associate with one individual, but like Python, Guido is um, famously there. Um, Ruby, it's Mats, uh, Pearl, yeah. Larry Wall, and uh, with Nim, it's Andreas, and uh, with D, I would also say be Walter Bright. And yeah, yeah. Um, you know, if I was to spend decades of my life on the thing, I don't think it would be a a programming language because hmm. the the chances of success are so slim, but the energy investment yeah, yeah. required is just so ridiculous that uh, yeah. that you can only like it's not the uh, I I yeah just I, I have tremendous respect, but also. Um, but I think, uh, like in, uh, recently, I'm not sure if you follow Closure a bit because we 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 follow Closure. Uh, obviously, uh, we do another podcast, uh, Defen, uh, about Closure. I think recently, Richie wrote, um, you know, history of Closure, and I mean, I think that the the interesting part with Closure is that he was able to, you know, put it on JVM, so he can piggyback on this ecosystem a lot. I mean. Yeah, all the languages that you mentioned, obviously, they require all the all the stuff, you know, because they are system programming languages, and or, or at least the programming languages they're not hosted on something. So Clojure, you know, uh, it's been almost fifteen years or something for Clojure, or maybe ten plus. Um, but the advantage is that it was running on top of JVM, so all this package management or libraries and, and some of the issues have been taken care of by by depending on on some piggybacking on some you know JVM, for example. For other languages, I mean, which are everything is from ground up, like Zig or Nim or D, it is it is a quite challenging endeavor uh, these days. Although the, probably the ideas are very very novel, or some of them you know, languages usable and ergonomic. Yeah, I, I I I I'm sort of thinking off the top of my head, but another class of that would be Alexa. So Alexa, yeah, uh, yeah, would, mm. you know, and in, in terms of Erlang, was able to um, you know take the virtual machine and create a new, much more accessible syntax for that virtual machine. Yeah, that mm. enabled Erlang, uh, like dependencies to actually be embedded within inside an Elixir program exactly. as well. Mm. I yeah. wonder whether or not you know, uh, and <laughs> I'm thinking sort of could a quote unquote systems programming language. You know, make it ridiculously easy for mm -hmm. probably C libraries or sort of uh, to be able to be embedded with inside itself. And I think maybe Zig would say that mm. because actually the Zig compiler is a C compiler, uh, for yeah. example, that you could run. Yeah, just uh, a, yeah, like you, you can put could, C code verbatim in it, right? Or something. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. That. Like it literally yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, exists. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's kind of. Um, <laughs> it's too smart for me. Like, <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, the potentially you've got a, a case where there is a, you could use just normal everyday, everyday libraries, like as mm. part of your, as part of the language and maybe bootstrap it that way. But, um, yeah, yeah, I think the only programming language that would be adopt would, the problem is that uh, languages that come out today need something special. Mm. They need something that defines them. And I think you know what yeah. Rust is defined by is the fact that it wants to bring 
a new standard to software. A, we yeah. want to be able to include a new, like if you've run, written JavaScript and you're just a, mm. a, a front-end developer, you're allowed into this world of systems programming. If you are mm-hmm. interested, we will, you are perfectly welcome here. So that's one yeah. of the things that it's trying to, to do is be yeah. explicitly open in terms of its yeah. community. The other thing that Rust is trying to do is save the world from these safety issues and mm. uh, because they are dangerous and because people die from their um, from their effects. You know, yeah. uh, we shouldn't have a situation in which our software takes control of an airplane and like sends it into a ground into the ground. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like even uh, now, I'm not saying that Rust would have fixed um, anything like that but mm. this is the world that we live in that our software controls all of the devices that live that we deal with from day to day things that we put yep. inside our bodies you know like our pacemaker mm. is run by software um yeah and they should be safe uh, at least mm. we, we shouldn't have uh ooh, yeah 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 so i think that's that's yeah, why no rust is coming yeah. becoming important is that it has this ambition to bring a new community in, into the world uh, or into yeah. the low-level world and uh, and to do it properly. Yeah. Mm. That makes sense. So maybe, uh, wow, it's one and a half hour. So uh, I think we should uh, we should try to, you know, circle back to the, to the, to the original thing. So I think uh, uh, the final couple of questions, I think, <laughs> one is that what prompted you to write this, write Rust in Action, you know, how did you? Because writing writing a book is, is is not an easy task, right? It's not like writing a program or something, you know. Like, <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. So I talked a lot about how I would not take on writing a programming language as <laughs> as a project, uh, but somehow yeah. I've been able to write this book. So, um, uh, so Rust in Action, um, I, um, so just as context for anyone that that hasn't been following along, uh, I have spent the last four years of my life writing this damn book. And that was <laughs> <Wow>. meant <laughs> three nights a week from about eight. We've probably just heard my, my daughters wake up. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So the, uh, from eight to 11 PM, three nights a week, plus a couple of hours uh, on the weekends has been my cadence um, for wow. roughly, roughly four years. And so, um, now, an editor would talk to you and say, oh, look, each chapter takes about 20 to 30 hours. Whereas in, mm. in reality, like one figure in one of the, like one figure would take me like two to three weeks. Like, because mm. I am um, like, I'm that. Uh, so there are examples, like, anyway. So for example, like there are playing cards, like I, yeah. inside the thing, like to describe smart pointers. I'm like, well, like, let's like make this a little bit fun and interesting. So like a whole bunch of my time is spent thinking about how to present things in an interesting manner. Now to mm-hmm. go back to your question, like what, why? Why? <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. Uh, um, the why is uh, pure chance. So mm. I was somewhat active, probably not very active, but I received an email from the publisher saying, hi, yeah. would you like to be a co-author on this Rust book we're writing? <laughs> okay. And so I said, well, that sounds, yeah, there are better Rust programmers in the world. Are you sure you're sending an email to the right person? And they said, yeah. no, 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 no. We, we're pretty confident that you'd write a good book. 
And it's like, okay, okay, fine. Anyway, it turns out that um, it was the second attempt or second or maybe third attempt that their publisher had. Uh, Manning mm. had tried to write a Rust book at the same time as they were writing a Go book, which came out two or three years before I had even started. And yeah. um, it had failed both times. And so this was kind of their last mm. chance. Ooh. The original author, we worked together for a couple of months, pulled out. Mm. Okay. Said, I can't do it. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it we, is really we, ambitious, we, we, right? Writing yeah, a book, yeah. yeah. So, so, um, so then the publisher said, okay, well, what on earth are we going to do? Uh, mm. and, and I said, look, it's, honestly, the stuff that we've already done is pretty crappy. Like, it's not how I, it's <laughs> a, and they said, what do you want to do? I said, can, can I have the, can I, can we start again? And so we started again. <laughs> and and like and uh, we didn't do it because we thought it was easy sorry we we, we, like we we did it because we thought it was easy not because it was actually easy right like uh the uh so yeah so there was two things that drove me one was this opportunity that um Mm. i believed in rust at the time and at that stage the the rust book the official one was not yet released and i mm-hmm. thought there was an opportunity for something that would sit after it that would yep. be concrete examples that would take people from feeling uh aware of the language into being able to feel comfortable with it now mm-hmm. the other thing that i thought was really important was that i had been noticing because i buy books myself and read quite a few technical books that the quality has recently started to kind of go bad yeah. Um, yeah. And I I think of O'Reilly as someone who mm. in the nineties and like early two thousands would always put out really excellent books. But now my impression, yes. and I really hope it, is that they're kind of just a content marketing company. Yeah. Like yeah. all of their material seems to be like co like sponsored by a particular yeah, vendor. Some, some, and, exactly. and they'll get complimentary ebooks and so forth. And I'm like, yeah. that feels really cheap to me. And I mean that's yeah. just kind of how publishing is going. And so the reason why I'm writing the book is actually to convince myself that you can write a really technical, a really good technical book. Yeah. And so my, I wanted to write the best technical book in the world. That, that was yeah, why yeah. I'm writing the book. Um, yeah. I wanted to write the very best technical book that I was ever able mm. to produce. And that's why I'm spending yeah. so long. Uh, yeah. Now, it turns out the reason why no publisher <laughs> has really excellent books is because they take a ridiculous amount of time. So, yeah. uh, so mm. I can understand why people decide to publish books that are okay, and like yeah. it's much, much more. You're going to make much more money if you start if you sell if you take two or three months to get a three star book than f- yeah. like four years to publish a five star mm. book. Yeah. Like, uh, and mm. so, but for me personally, I want to save every person. I want to save at least a hundred hours from every person who reads my material. Like if you're mm. interested in learning, learning Rust, that mm. is my goal for you. Is that you read yeah. my book and it will save you a hundred years, a hundred hours on your learning journey. And I yeah. think that um, the majority is about about ninety percent of people. Oh, sorry, let's say seventy percent of people definitely yeah, agree yeah. with that statement. There's about mm. twenty twenty five percent of people who, uh, you know, it's kind of like they would agree or like they would kind of be positive. Uh, and there's about a five percent yeah. percent people who are like this is this is a stupid book. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean that, that's, that's fair. That is always 
there is <laughs> always those people on the internet right you know yeah, yeah, but yeah, i i yeah. i think so, i i totally agree because i i did by the book uh, when it was still in meep you know that the first chapters were out so i totally see that the amount of effort that you're putting and the updates that you keep making to the to the thing um i think i also uh, uh contacted you on reddit as well so i think that this is a as you said this this is a very nice book to 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 you know build up your rust knowledge and and deliver projects you know like that, that that's the nice thing that i can see it's, it's not just list of concepts but you know you build something and then move to the next uh complicated one in the next chapter so that's that's really uh, uh now i know like there is four years of hard work behind it and it shows so so i i can totally recommend you know people uh, getting this um so any um i'm, I'm never going to yeah, complain sorry. about podcasts editing ever again <laughs> I mean, yeah, like, I spend so, so, a ridiculous so, so, amount of time for each minute, but nowhere near the amount of time you spend on the box. So it's all good. Yeah, all good. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. So, and like one pitch, one sort of a natural follow-up is um, like, well, how much money are you making from this thing? Yeah, and yeah. like, so like, let me give you. Are you retiring with trust in action? That's right. Is, is this my new career? And I have actually had people asking me, like, is this your new career? You're going to become a technical writer? And I would say, yeah. well, sadly, no. So I make about $2 a book. Um, oh, wow. $2 that's, a that's, so, yeah. um, so people say, well, if it's $36 US, how can you only make $2 US from it? And mm. uh, the reason why is that very, very few people buy it at $36 US. Almost, I would yeah. say, almost everyone who buys it, buys it on sale, which means that yeah. um, they buy it for like 40 or 50% off, which is like automatically yeah. comes down to say, let's say somewhere in the twenties. Mm. And then, uh, <laughs> and then like life becomes complicated because, uh, there's also credit card pay processing payments. Um, yeah. there are sort of other charges. If you buy it through Amazon, they take a cut and, mm, yes. um, and so forth. And so what the author is left with is 10% of the net revenue that the publisher receives. Well, at least what I receive, because oh. I'm the first author, right? Yeah, so, yeah. The, so I receive ten percent of what gets in the hands of the publisher, which effectively works out at about two dollars a book. So, like, well, how oh. many books are sold? So, well, at the mm. moment, I'm sitting at about seven thousand. Um, oh, nice. So that's like surprisingly the average. So that's a, a ridiculous. Like, that's a good number of books sold. It actually hasn't yeah. got to print. Uh, yeah. The uh, you should expect if you write one of these things for yourself to sell about somewhere between one and three thousand copies. So yeah. Rust in Action has done very well. It's been a very difficult journey, and I'm really proud of it. Um, but no, sadly not. Um, I have only received part of the. The way that Manning works is that you only receive your advance, or like in my case, yeah. all, or I've already met the whole advance. But once mm. it hits print. And so I've received a two and a half thousand dollar US check um, for the first yeah. third of the manuscript, and um, that's all the money that I've received in my hand so far. And, but it's like uh, four years of of work, you know. Then it's not really comparable. That that's the whole whole thing, you know, like the, the amount of effort that is required to 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 get it. The yeah. technical but, term I, I, is labor I, I, of love. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I yeah. should say yeah. though that I probably it got shows. my current job because of the book, or at least because of yeah. the determination. And so there's definitely been, and also like I would never have, you have never have talked to me if I wasn't the author of Rust in Action. Like if I was just some interesting, uh, curious Rust programmer, probably, well, maybe you might yeah, have. Yeah. Um, yeah, but like yeah, it, yeah. it has been able to 
open doors for me and pr- provide me mm. opportunities just um, yeah. that were completely off limits um, before. Yeah. And it also naturally provides a level of uh, credibility that mm. I can't just tell people, oh, look, I'm a great Rust programmer. Or, you know, yeah. I, I don't want to say, well, um, you know, like it stands on its own as a demonstration of my own competence. And so yeah. both as a technologist and someone who writes programming, but also someone who writes uh, for humans as well as mm, software. Yeah. And so that skill or those combination skills are are, are quite rare. And so that's been really, really positive as well. Um, Yeah. yeah. So it's not all bad, but but it's just, it's not financially viable, right? Like it's not, it's not, (laughs) I will not become a technical author as a career. I mean, of course, I mean, we're we're not, um, uh, we are very grateful that, you know, you're the the amount of, as Walter said, labor of love, you know, because you it shows that you like the language, you believe in its 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 vision and and what the language is good for, and you use all your experience to to bring that to people who, who want to learn and, and save their time. So, I think people who are listening, um, you should go to Manning.com and then buy it from there. I think that's much uh, better for for you know uh, buying the book, obviously. Um, so that's um, Rust in action, and uh, also I, I follow Tim on Twitter. Um, uh, we'll we'll post all the links on on our uh, podcast notes. And what is your Twitter handle, by the way? Maybe it's easier to just um... it's Tim Clicks. So T I M C L I C K S. So go and follow Tim, and um, you know, uh, buy the book and ask him questions. Uh, I think you can still leave comments on the book, right? While you're absolutely right. So we're actually in sort of the final editing period right now. Uh, the book uh, will uh, hit. Um, so. Within, within, uh, so what, what, what that comment was, if you create an account on Manning, well, you buy it from there, you are given access to a PDF copy, a uh, print copy if you buy that option, but also a live book, which is a website mm. with the code uh, and text in line. And you can highlight yeah. sentences and say, there's an error here. And hundreds mm. of people have, and I'm extremely grateful for that because I can yeah. basically use that as a to-do list and fix every problem. Uh, yeah. and um, and yeah, there's still an opportunity to contribute to the book. Yeah. So thanks a lot for for all your, uh, first of all, I mean, your time. Uh, I know we've been a bit, uh, uh, we had some technical glitches last time to to record the episode. We were uh, honoring we, our we're... name of Are We Podcast Yet? It was definitely <laughs> exactly. a question. <laughs> So and and uh, you know taking the time to talk to us and sharing your your knowledge and your passion about Rust. Um, so we look forward to you know all the great things that you're going to do with uh, with Rust and uh, in the community. And I think that's it from us. Uh, this is Vijay from Holland. So Walter from Belgium and Tim from New Zealand. Hey, it's been a wonderful discussion. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.